Father in heaven, what a blessing it is to be in this church. Father, a beautiful church made all the more beautiful by the people that are here. And Father, they are beautiful because a price has been paid for them. An infinite price, an incalculable price has been paid for the people here. And Father, we come to sing and to pray and to praise and to listen to the preaching of the word. But Father, we come most of all and above all to learn about Jesus. And so we gather here today well aware that there are people all over the world who do not yet know about Jesus. Or if they've heard his name, perhaps they've been introduced to an incorrect picture or a caricature of Jesus. Father, the prayer of this pastor's heart and of this congregation's heart is that you would use our humble seaside church here to make a difference not just in our local community, but all around the world. Father, may your spirit come into these messages. May your spirit come into the hearts of the people who are here so that we will see a really synergistic thing happening, Father, a powerful, growing, reverberating local ministry that is also a global ministry in terms of its reach. So, Father, we pray that this will be the beginning of something great. We believe that this week at Kingscliff, you're going to do something awesome. And we think you're going to do something awesome next week and the week after and the week after. Father, not because of some great preacher or some great preaching, but because of the Holy Spirit and because Jesus is so totally awesome. Father, you have brought us on a journey. It's been a three-year-long journey, and here we are. And we are thrilled to be clay in your hands, putty in your hands, malleable, so, Father, we give you full permission to shape, to mold, to craft, if need be, to rebuke and to correct us. But, Father, whatever you do with us, just make us into vessels of honor. Make us into people that you can use for the upbuilding of your kingdom. And, Father, now as we turn our attention to Scripture, and especially as we think today about history and the role Scripture has played in history, may we have our understanding of what it means to be Christians and what it means to be Protestant Christians increased. Be with us now, Father, as we open the text of Scripture and as we open the pages of history. May you open us, is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Amen. Amen. All right. Well, we are still just barely in the year 2017. And who knows what significant event we are celebrating the 500th anniversary of. Okay, very good. The Reformation, Protestant Reformation. What we're going to talk about today are the two words that you see there on your screen, sola scriptura. By a raising of hands, how many people know when they hear that Latin phrase, how many know what that means? Raise your hands nice and high. Very good. Sola scriptura. And you'll notice that there's a prefix here, 500. And the reason is we are celebrating from 1517 to 2017, the 500-year anniversary of really the catalyzing of the Protestant Reformation when a young Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther nailed his theses of protest to a cathedral door in Wittenberg, Germany. And we're going to talk about that today, sola scriptura. Now, before we get actually into the historical sweep, and, and most of what we're going to do today is going to be history. We're going to be taking a look at the flow of history, and not just history as it has happened, but history as it was predicted. History is, what did I say, everyone? As it was predicted or as it was prophesied in Scripture. So notice here on the screen, tragically, numerous biblical prophecies and passages 
anticipate a widespread, what's that next word there? A widespread apostasy in the Christian era. Now, that word apostasy is a word that you don't hear very much. It doesn't come up in usual vernacular, common vernacular. What the word means is a divorce or a separation. What we're suggesting here is that there are many passages in Scripture that actually predicted, that prophesied, that anticipated that there would be a divorce in the Christian era, that there would be a departure from the church that Jesus had established. And there are many passages in both the Old and the New Testaments in which we find this departure predicted, right? And I've just put, in a, put a few of them up on the screen for you here. Passages such as Daniel chapter 7 to 9. And for many of you, when I say that, Daniel chapter 7, 8 and 9, you'll get a word picture. You'll get a, a portrait in your mind already. You know what I'm talking about there, right? The, the beasts that come up out of the sea in Daniel chapter 7, the lion and the bear and the leopard and the, and the terrible beast, right? And then Daniel chapter 8 and also 9. You'll know what's being talked about there, all anticipating a widespread departure and divorce in the Christian church. In the New Testament, Matthew chapter 24 and its parallel passage, Luke chapter 21, are passages where Jesus says really crazy things, really radical things like this. Jesus said, the time will come when men will kill you and think they're doing a service for God. Now just let that sink into your mind. Jesus says, the time will come when people will kill other people and they will say, I'm doing this in the name of the God of Scripture. Acts chapter 20 is, is a passage where we find the Apostle Paul gathering together one of the churches that he had been instrumental in planting, the church in Ephesus. And he, had say, he said to the church in Ephesus that after his departure, grievous wolves would come in among the church, not sparing the flock. And all of the Ephesian elders that would have heard Paul's stern warning, they would have thought automatically that, that the warning that Paul was given, giving was a warning against Rome and against this external military threat. In fact, the apostle says, also from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. The thing that Paul was warning against was not primarily an external threat, but an internal threat, a betrayal of the very truth of the good news of the gospel and of the church. One of the most pregnant and probably complicated passages in the writings of Paul is found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that whole section there where Paul describes the man of sin and, and this divorce or this apostasy. Also, 1 John chapter 2 and 4, where, where John actually coins the term. Many scholars believe that, that John coined the term antichrist, right? That wasn't a term he borrowed from somebody else. That was his term. It was uniquely John. He said there's going to come a power that will so oppose Christ, it will be like an antichrist, usurp the very place of Christ. Then, of course, the book of Revelation is the historical trajectory of the church, as John was there on the island of Patmos writing down, he said, this is what's going to happen to the church. And if you've read the book of Revelation, let's be honest, it's a little scary, right? It wasn't this beautiful, Edenic, Halcyon picture where everything's just going to be totally fine and the church is going to sail off into the sunset. And so in each of these passages, Daniel, Matthew, Luke, Acts, Thessalonians, John, and Revelation, all of them are saying the same thing. Paul was saying it. Jesus was saying it. John was saying it. Troublesome times are coming. A departure is coming. A difficult time is coming. Now, I want to begin by actually quoting a book, the very book that was instrumental in my own conversion to Christ. Back in about 1995, I began to attend, uh, attend is probably not the right word, I began to, to go to a local vegetarian restaurant. I was a purple-haired punk rocker and was really passionate about eating a vegan diet, right? I was a vegan. 
And this was a vegan restaurant that opened up in my town, which was the sort of heart of the, what we call the beef belt in the United States. And so it was a bit of an anomaly to have a vegetarian restaurant in the heart of the beef belt. And so we would go to this restaurant, me and my group of punk rockers, and these people were the weirdest people I'd ever met in my life. Now, the funny thing about that is, is that we came in, you know, dressed like punk rockers with purple hair, blue hair, green hair, piercings, and tattoos, and we thought they were weird. And what made them so weird, frankly, was that they were so friendly. They were so wholesome. They were so, they, they were something like a Laura Ingalls Wilder novel, right? Like just straight out of Little House on the Prairie. You just plop them down in this vegetarian restaurant. And I'll never forget, after they got to know our names and we would come in and out of the, the restaurant, they'd say things like, here comes Brother David. It's like, Brother David. I used to make fun of them. I used to say, hey, Sister Mary. And she'd say, you're catching on. Mary and Tom owned that restaurant. And I, I went to that restaurant for about two years before finally moving away and, and going to another town that didn't have such a lovely vegetarian restaurant. But before leaving, they gave me a book called The Great Controversy. And this book, The Great Controversy, written more than 100 years ago by a woman named Ellen White, is actually a book that goes through those very passages that we just had up on the screen. Through those passages in Paul and in John and in Revelation and in Daniel that shows the trajectory, the history of the church in advance. That book, The Great Controversy, had a determinative impact on my life. And I went from being a 24-year-old purple-haired punk rocker who was studying medicine to being somebody who was just absolutely passionate about the gospel, passionate about the Bible, passionate about Scripture. It literally changed. I did a U-turn in the whole direction of my life. I want to start by reading you a statement from that book. Ellen White writes, The voice of Luther that echoed in the mountains and valleys, that shook Europe as with an earthquake, summoned forth an army of noble apostles of Jesus. And the truth they advocated could not be silenced by fire, by tortures, by dungeons, by death. And still the voices of the noble army of martyrs are telling us that the Roman power is, and notice this next slide here, the predicted apostasy. The what two words, everyone? The predicted apostasy. The prophesied, the anticipated, the looked for departure. Not just that there was a departure, not just that there was a divorce, but it was anticipated, it was predicted, it was prophesied, the predicted apostasy of the last days. The mystery of iniquity which Paul, uh, which Paul saw beginning to work even in his day. Quoting here from the passage that we mentioned just a moment ago, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So this idea that there would be a widespread departure within Christendom is not something that, that church members and historians have said retroactively only. It's not like we're just looking back at history and saying, well, that, that did shape up in a certain way, right? Since the establishment of the church by Jesus some 2,000 years ago, it would be fairly easy to look back over what has happened and say, as historians say, I'm not minimizing the historical task, it's not an easy task, but comparably easy to say that that is what happened, but it's a very different animal, a very different situation to be over here in the time of Jesus, in the time of Paul, in the time of John, or even earlier in the time of Daniel and say, this is what it's going to look like. This is what's going to happen. One is history and the other is prophecy. And here in this book, Great Controversy, we're being told that this Roman departure, which we're going to get to in just a second, was the predicted apostasy, the anticipated apostasy. Now, if you're not familiar with church history, and, and some of this is a little bit tough for you, maybe you're not a history buff like I am. I know we have a few history buffs in here. Gordon's a history buff. 
And I know some others of you are as well. But if you're not, I can give you the basic shape of church history in, in 30 seconds. And it's just four simple chapters. Okay? The church was formed by Jesus. You might remember Jesus said that on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So the church is formed by Jesus. Of course, the church actually predates Jesus going back into Israel, but that's another story. We're not going to deal with that right now. In terms of the resurrection of Jesus, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, 3,000 being baptized on the day of Pentecost, the church was formed. And you would think that from that start with all of the power and inspiration of the Spirit that the church would go from strength to strength and just opportunity to opportunity. And that sort of happened. In the first 100 to 200 years during the apostolic period and just the period immediately after the apostolic period, the church actually did go more or less from strength to strength. But if you can imagine a plane that's sort of on the tarmac, right? And you have a plane, and it's just getting ready. It's going down the runway, and it takes off. The takeoff is the resurrection of Jesus and the subsequent outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And it just looks like everything's going to be great. And that plane gets right up to cruising altitude. And it remains at cruising altitude for just a bit. But, but no sooner does it get to cruising altitude than there begins to be some problems with the engine, some problems with the navigation system, and the plane begins to go down. And that's what you see here on the graph. Right? The shape of church history is not just that the church was formed in the wake of the resurrection of Jesus in the apostolic period, but that shortly after reaching cruising altitude, it began to be deformed. So we're calling this the second chapter or the deformation of the church. That deformation would not just be a momentary problem. In fact, it would be something analogous to, to the church plummeting, to the plane plummeting, almost to crashing into the very ground. Right? It just comes screaming out of 30,000 feet in the air, and it's just being massively deformed. This is a catastrophic, dangerous situation. It looks like the wheels have completely come off. And that period, that deformational period we're going to talk about today, that deformation, the departure, the divorce, would become so profound and so amazing and, and such a radical difference from the church that Jesus had established, what would happen is there would begin to be cries for reformation. Hey, this isn't, this isn't the church that Jesus established. This doesn't look like the church that the apostles established. And so there began to be these reformational cries. And the battle cry of those, the, the, the sort of watchword of those early reformational cries was the phrase that we're talking about here today. Sola Scriptura. Which simply means only Scripture. Only the Scriptures. And when those cries for reform from within the church began to echo... In, first in university halls and, and then in various countries. And as, as, the, as the church began to right itself, it began to make its way back up. But that didn't happen just in a moment. In the same way that the, the deformational period was incremental and cumulative, the reformation would also be incremental. Small steps. You're not just going to go from, from this period of gross medieval darkness right back to true apostolic purity in one step. An analogy that I've used that has some strengths and a few weaknesses is imagine that you're a reasonably fit person that begins to slack on exercise and begins to eat. Instead of eating one cookie or two cookies, you begin to eat a box of cookies or you'd say biscuits, right? And you begin to eat a bag of chips and you begin to drink a lot of sweet drinks and sodas, right? You can get away with this when you're a teenager, Right? You get to be in your 30s, 40s, and 50s. You can't get away with that anymore. Right? And even some teens can't get away with it. And what happens is if you do that long enough, you, just, you will begin to put on weight. And if you, do it, if you do it seriously enough, severely enough, you can become obese. 
right? So you could go from a period of, you, you could go from a state of relative fitness to, to obesity in probably a year or two or three or four. And let's just say that one day you woke up, you looked in the mirror, you're like, whoa, I barely recognize myself. This, this isn't what I'm, this isn't how I remember myself, this, my, myself. This isn't consistent with my own image of myself. And let's just say that you purpose in your heart and say, man, I'm not going to live this way anymore. I want to get healthy again. Well, you don't just go to the gym one time and suddenly you're back to what you were before you began those incremental habits. No, in the same way that it took you time to get into that hole, it's going to take you what to get out of it? It's going to take time. And the church is similar. In the same way that the church, through centuries of tradition and a, a neglect of the Scripture... As it went down, 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 it would only be a return to Scripture. Down here at the nadir, that's the term that's used, the lowest point, the opposite of the zenith, which is the highest point, the nadir. Down here at the very bottom, people began to say, enough with traditions, enough with the church councils, enough with the priests and the popes and the cardinals. What does Scripture say? And those reformational calls began to turn the ship. But here again, it didn't happen in a moment, and that's that third chapter, Reformation. As the church begins to go up, you can sort of think of three and four. I've put them up as two things, reformation, restoration, but really they're the same thing. Restoration is just more reformation. So they're not two different things. It's just if you cumulatively get enough reformational principles, enough reformational truths, you will reach a period of apostolic restoration. So that what the church looks like down at the end will be similar to what the church looked like at the beginning. And so this is church history in 30 seconds or less. The church was formed by Jesus in the wake of his resurrection and through the apostolic preaching under the outpouring of the Spirit, reached cruising altitude, became deformed in the medieval period. Those reformational cries in the 14th and 15th centuries began a process that is leading... What language did I say there, everyone? Is leading the church to full restoration of apostolic purity. If you wanted to attach dates to these four chapters, formation, deformation, reformation, restoration, some general dates that you could attach would look like this, right? The formation period would be AD 27, which is the baptism of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus at AD 31. Any of those dates would work up to AD 312. Now, you might be thinking, why AD 312? That's what we're going to talk about in our next presentation. Why AD 312? What's so significant there? And the short version is, this was the year in which Constantine the Great became the first Roman emperor to profess Christianity, right? And that begins, the, that's the end of the formation period. That then begins the medieval period from the 4th century to the 14th century, a period of some thousand years, sometimes called colloquially the Dark Ages, though that term isn't used much anymore, now usually just called the medieval period. Right through that, that's where we're going down, down, down. And then the Reformation, I've got two dates up there for you, 1331 or 1517. There's lots of different dates that can be used. And this is one of the things, when you start looking into history, you start studying history, and especially as you start trying to explain history, you realize that history doesn't happen in these little punctiliar events. Hip history happens, of course, just like your life is happening, like a narrative. There are important dates in your life, and in my life, August 16th is a very important date. It's the anniversary of my birth. April 4th is a very important date. It's the anniversary of, of, my, we of my wedding to Violetta. So all of that, yes, but life doesn't happen in these sort of punctiliar, episodic moments. Life happens as a narrative. And if somebody was going to write a biography of my life or of your life, two biographers might tell your story slightly differently. 
right? And history is the same way. History is told by historians, and so it's not always easy to put a precise date. And so 1331 is the year that John Wycliffe, the morning star of the Reformation, was born. That's a very important date. We'll talk about that a little bit in a little bit. 1517 is the date that is so significant for us this year because it's the 500th anniversary of 1517, and that was the year that Luther, the Augustinian monk, posted his theses of protest, 95 theses, to a cathedral door in Wittenberg. Okay? So that's sort of the, the, the commencement of the Reformational period that extends to 1844, which is another presentation we'll give. And then finally, Reformation, or Restoration, remember, it's not two separate things, it's Reformation, Restoration. If you continue with enough Reformation, we will eventually attain, through sticking to Scripture, sola scriptura, that apostolic simplicity and purity. Can the church say amen? Okay, great. Bit of a history lesson today. Bruce Shelley, in his excellent book, Church History in Plain Language, says this. The movement, the Christian movement, started the fourth century as a persecuted minority. It ended the century as the established religion of the empire. The advantages for the church were real enough. This is describing the church in the wake of the conversion of Constantine. But there was a price to pay. Shelley says, oh, it was really good. It looked really good at the outset. Right? But there was a price to pay. What was that price, Mr. Shelley? Constantine ruled Christian bishops as he did his civil servants and demanded unconditional obedience to official pronouncements, even when they interfered with purely church matters. There were also now the masses who streamed into the officially favored church. Prior to Constantine's conversion, the church consisted of convinced believers. Now many who came were politically ambitious, religiously, eh, disinterested, and still half-rooted in paganism. Now, you can sort of get a feel for the shape of this. I'll, I'll show you a chart in just a second. When he talks about people streaming into the Christian church, he's, he's not exaggerating. This threatened to produce not only shallowness and permeation by pagan superstitions, but it also created the secularization and misuse of religion for, what are those next two words there? For political purposes the use of religion for political purposes. And this chart here is a simple chart that diagrams, as best as we can tell, what you might call the post-Constantinian growth of the church. Okay, so let's just go back to our, to our formation, deformation, restoration, uh, re reformation, restoration. Here we are in the establishment of the church by Jesus, right? And so the church is formed, and we're sort of saying that's the first two, three centuries. The church then has this significant event that takes place right at the beginning of the 4th century. And you can see that here. This, he this chart here depicts the percentage of the Roman Empire that were Jewish or Christian. Okay? So you can see down there, it's like 2 to 3%. 2 to 3%. The vast Roman Empire, Jewish, Christian peoples are somewhere between 2 to 3, maybe as high as 5% of the empire. But then notice what happens here. Right at about AD 300, AD 312 to be precise, in the years and decades immediately after AD 312, the, the percentage leaps to 70% of the Christian, of, of the Roman Empire. Well, what had happened? Well, the very thing that Shelley just identified. When Constantine professed Christianity, it now became the officially sanctioned and favored church, and pagans and religiously disinterested and politically ambitious people began to stream into the church. Now, one way to think about it is this way. When the church in some of those early, especially the first two centuries, there were significant persecutions, Nero, Diocletian, Decian, some significant persecutions in those early centuries there. 
The church had survived persecution. The question going forward would be, could the church survive popularity? I want to say that again. The church had survived persecution, but could it survive popularity? Now, let's talk a little bit more about this post-Constantinian growth. Another major factor that happens is that Constantine in AD 330 decides to move the seats of the, of the empire, the, the imperial city of Rome. He decides to move the seat of the empire some 1,500 kilometers due east to Byzantium or the city of Constantine, Constantinople, what we today call Istanbul. Now, this is remarkable because what's going to happen, you can just imagine, is that this is an eastward move. What direction, everyone? Eastward. Hold on to that for just a moment. That will become very important for us historically. Okay? So Constantine is going to move the imperial seat, all of the political power and prestige, all that had formerly been associated with Rome is now in some sense being transferred to a new location. There's a new empire, uh, city of the empire now, and that's Constantinople, the city of Constantine. Now, what that's going to do is it's going to create a power vacuum in the West, right? Who's in charge? If that has been the seat of the Roman Empire for centuries, now that, now that the seat of the empire has moved, what happens? And the answer is, is that there's going to be a power vacuum created and someone is going to step into that power vacuum. We're going to see who that is in just a bit. Back to Bruce Shelley and his church history in plain language. Whatever Constantine's motives were for adopting the Christian faith, and this is debated hotly by scholars. Was it an authentic conversion? Was it just a politically motivated conversion? Whatever Constantine's motives for adopting the Christian faith, the result was a, what is the next word there, everyone? A decline. A decline in Christian commitment. The stalwart believers whom Diocletian killed were replaced by a mixed multitude of half-converted pagans. Right? He said, whatever the reasons for Constantine, some say it was political ambition, others say, no, it was a genuine conversion. I lean strongly toward the fact that, toward the idea that it was just politically motivated. Right? By this point, the Roman Empire is already beginning to fragment. It won't, it'll just be about two centuries before the Roman Empire dissolves completely in AD 476. And so there were external factors that were putting a lot of pressure to try and come up with something that would bring some degree of unity and of homogeneity to Rome. And Christianity was the thing. I believe that it was a political move. Now, here's a, a, I need to sort of help you to understand the landscape of Christianity in the second, third, and fourth centuries in order to understand these next slides. We today take mass communication for granted, right? We can just watch a television show. We can pick up the paper. We can go on uh, Twitter or Facebook. And we, we just have the whole world of information immediately available to us, okay? This was not the case, of course, in the second and third centuries. So what would happen is, is that, that you tend to have sort of isolated pockets of information and of culture, so that different areas were, were much more separated, or even you might say isolated in some sense. Most people in the ancient world, for example, would die within about 25 miles radius of where they were born, right? The idea that today I'm just going to get on a plane and I'm going to travel to Papua New Guinea, I'm going to fly to the United States, I'm going to take a trip to Ethiopia, or I'm going to go to Austria, right? We just take that for granted. But in the ancient world, you lived and died pretty much in your local area. And for that reason... Local areas, local regions, local cities began to take on their own unique flavor. Well, Christianity was a part of that. And so, of course, the founding of Christianity takes place in Jerusalem. As it slowly, be well, I shouldn't even say slowly, as it begins to spread 
by some standards slowly and by other metrics not so slowly. But as this Christianity begins to spread, it goes to the north of Africa, places like Carthage and Alexandria, and it begins to sp- spread up to Rome. And what you end up having is sort of a, a sort of a three or four way three or four way friendly competition to put your own cultural impress and your own take on Christianity, sort of to to put your impress on what Christianity looks like. And each of these different centers of Christian influence had their own flavor, right? Jerusalem had a very strong Jewish flavor, also with Antioch. And Alexandria began to have sort of its own flavor under the influence of people like Origen and others. And then Rome began to have its flavor, and then later Constantinople. And if you can just sort of imagine, you know, four people up here, and, and they're all holding hands, so there's fraternal connection there. They're all Christians, but, but everybody's sort of vying. They're jockeying to put their interpretation, their culture, their imprint on Christianity. Well, in this sort of competition between Jerusalem here and the north of Africa here and Rome here and Constantinople here, Rome is going to win out. Rome is going to win. Rome is going to become, the bishop of Rome is going to become the one who will slide into that power vacuum in the imperial city, the former imperial city. And the question is, how? How does that happen? Or to put it in really simple, common nomenclature, you would say, how do you make a pope? What's the recipe for a pope, right? There's recipes for pies, and there's recipes for cakes, and there's recipes for lasagnas. But how do you make a pope? Okay, I'm going to teach you how to make a pope right here. This is what history tells us. This is how you make a pope. One of the first things that began to happen in the 3rd and 4th centuries is that the passage that I quoted earlier, Matthew chapter 16, began to be used. Upon this rock, Jesus had said to Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. And, And that verse began to be used not in the general sense of God's church being built upon the rock of Jesus, but being built upon the smaller rock of Peter, which gives birth to the second idea here, the idea of apostolic succession. Now, actually, there is some truth to apostolic succession, a little bit of truth in this sense. In pre-literary times, pre-modern times, where they didn't have the technologies that you and I take for granted, the way that stories and the way that truths and the way that narratives were passed on were oral tradition, right? You told your children, you told your children's children, and then they told their children and their children's children. And the sort of oral culture in which literacy rates were very low, far less than 10%. Right? Literacy was something that only the nobles and, and the scholars had. Most of it, the common person could not read. Today, literacy rates, for example, in Australia or America would be higher than 90%. Right? But in those days, you passed this information on through an oral tradition. So in a sense, it was true that, that Peter had disciples that he would have taught, and John had disciples that he would have taught, and of course, Jesus had disciples that he taught, and then those disciples would have taught, and then those other disciples would have taught, but, but it began to go a step further where it wasn't just the passing on of information, not just the passing on of teaching, it was the passing on of the keys to the kingdom, that some almost quasi-magical thing was bestowed upon Peter by Jesus that Peter then bestowed, that then bestowed, that then bestowed. I was just recently in Europe, as many of you know, and I went to one of the many cathedrals that I went to is a, a, a cathedral called St. Uh, Paul's Outside the Walls in Rome. And when you walk into that th- cathedral, it's just absolutely brilliant in, in all of its gold and opulence. And if you look all the way across the entire ceiling, there are, there are hundreds of of different little portraits, and they are all the succession of popes from Peter. I went right, I got a picture of it. There's Peter followed by Linus, followed by, followed by, you just go right down, you come all the way down, and there's Pope Francis. 
This idea that there was an uninterrupted apostolic succession, that Peter received something from Jesus, the keys of the kingdom were given proprietarily and uniquely to, Je- to Peter and his successors. This idea began to gain circulation. Remember, that four-way competition. Who's going to emerge? Will it be Jerusalem Antioch that emerges? Will it be Constantinople that emerges that puts their impress on Christianity? Will it be the north of Africa that puts their impress? Or will it be Rome? Well, the answer is Rome. Number three, the martyrdoms of Peter and Paul. Rome was where some of the most significant persecutions in the early Christian world took place in Rome. A very persecuted church and therefore a venerated church. A church that everybody looked up to. Paul, even in the book of Romans, he writes and he says, Your faith is spoken of through the whole world. Your obedience is spoken of through the whole world. And the fact that Peter and Paul were martyred there, this just gave the the church in Rome a certain prestige. Rome's population base, of course, is going to contribute. Rome was the imperial capital, which we've discussed. The Latin language versus the Greek language was a very important element that I don't have time to develop right now. But the short version is is that the Greek language has many more words. The Latin language, many fewer words. And to put a Christian creed or a doctrine in Latin actually made it easier for everybody to agree because that Latin, single Latin word, would encompass a number of meanings where the precise meaning of different Greek words were debated endlessly. Number seven, Rome's location to the north and the west. Now remember, just a moment ago, I had that slide up there, and we showed that in AD 330, when Constantine moved the seat of his empire, what direction did he move it? He moved it, he moved it 1,500 kilometers, 1,000 miles to the east. Now, if you just can imagine in your mind's eye a map of the growth of the Christian church, if you can put Jerusalem down in the bottom right-hand corner of that map, you put Jerusalem right here. This is, the, this is where the church began. This is where the Holy Spirit was outpoured on the day of Pentecost. Here's Jerusalem. What way did the church grow? Right? I'm f- facing you guys. So this is going to be to the what? What direction is that? I mean, I'm getting confused here because I'm backward. Here's Jerusalem in the bottom right-hand corner. So this is going to be your west. Am I right? Anyway, you get the idea. I am so turned around right now. This is key. The church grew to the north and the west. The church grew to the north and the west. When you think about the, the growth of the Christian church, it grew north and west. In other words, toward Rome and then up into what was called Gaul and what we call Europe. The church did not really grow to the east because the Persians were slow to convert. Number one. And number two, after you have the rise of Islam in the 6th and 7th centuries, now a 7th century, all of a sudden you're not moving east at all. In fact, the church is increasingly moving to the north and the west in terms of Christian conversions, Christian growth, the the growth of the church. Well, this becomes very significant because that's where Rome is located, right? Where Jerusalem's in the far east of the Christian empire, Rome is in the far north and the far west. Missionary outreach into Europe, which is to the north and the west. The various barbarian invasions that begin to pick apart and fragment Rome. Muslim conquest, which I just mentioned ago, now pushing from the east. The leadership of Pope Leo I, who would actually go and save Rome from Attila the Hun, and then later the head of the Vandals, Gesseric the Vandal. And then finally, the emperor of the Eastern Roman Empire, Justinian, issued a decree that the bishop of Rome was the head of all churches and the official persecutor of heretics. So what happens is is that that sort of friendly, fraternal, four-way competition between Jerusalem and Antioch and, and Constantinople and Rome and the north of Africa, places like Alexandria, in the second and third century, while it's a sort of friendly 
jocular, everybody trying to put their impress on Christianity. By the time you get to the 5th and 6th centuries, Rome has won and won decisively. This is why the church came to be called not just the Catholic church. Listen carefully. The word Catholic just means universal. What it means is, is that the people in the north of Africa believed the same thing that the people did in Jerusalem and Antioch, the same thing that they believed in Constantinople, and the same thing that they believed in Rome. The word Catholic just means universal. Everybody believing the same thing. Everybody believing in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In fact, the, the establishment of the Nicene Creed in eighth, AD 325 and the Council of Nicaea was designed to try to get everybody on the same page. And for the most part, the church was Catholic. That just means universal. Everybody agreed the same thing. They all were more or less on the same page. That's the first century, second century, third century. But as soon as you get into the fourth and fifth centuries, as Rome begins to emerge, they win that competition there. Listen carefully now. You might hear this now for the first time with new ears. You have not now just the Catholic Church. You have the Roman Catholic Church. That is to say, the Roman version of Christianity. This isn't the Jerusalem version of Christianity. This isn't the Alexandrian version of Christianity. This isn't the Constantinopolian version of Christianity. This is the Roman version of Christianity, which comes to be called simply and colloquially the Roman Catholic Church or the medieval church. So when we talk about the formation and the deformation... As the church begins to depart from Scripture and from apostolic simplicity and purity, it begins to go down. The primary driving factor that causes the church is a departure from Scripture, that causes the church to deform, is a departure from Scripture. A departure from what, everyone? Scripture. Where traditions and councils and creeds and the ways of man increasingly distance from Scripture. Well, Scripture is where the truth is, and Scripture is where the power is. And so if you're departing from the source of uh, truth and you're departing from the source of power, well, then you're going to become spiritually obese. You are going to go through a period of deformation. I'm going to talk about that more in our next presentation. Now, as this begins to happen, as the church begins to depart from Scripture, a major factor begins to happen in the wake of the demise of the empire of Rome. I mentioned A.D. 476 earlier, right? By the time we get to the end of the 5th century, or toward the end of the 5th century, Rome, as you think about it in the movies, Rome as you think about it in Ben-Hur, Rome as you think about it in some of the movies that have made Rome famous, or some of the novels that have made Rome famous, that Rome is gone, right? Now you have the, a, a, a number of fractured city-states and geographic regions that is held together. The primary binding agent is Christianity, and who's the head of the Christian church? Well, it's the Bishop of Rome. And so the Bishop of Rome begins to have a significant amount of influence over the kings and the leaders of the state. And here's just a quick shotgun portrait of that. When we talk about the post-Constantinian deformation of the church, we have to talk about things like this. Pope Leo I saving Rome from being sacked by the Huns and the Vandals in 452. Gregory I is the first medieval pope. There's that medieval word, the, 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 the Middle Ages, AD 590. Pope Zacharias I crowns one of the kings of the Franks, Pepin the Short. Now get that in your mind. This is the pope putting the crown of authority, putting the crown on the emperor. Church and state connecting. Pepin the Short's successor, he was one of the kings of the Franks, was Charlemagne. 
and Pope Leo III crowned Charlemagne as Roman Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. Pope Gregory VII excommunicates Henry IV over what's called the investiture controversy in 1077. Now that's a fascinating little point I just want to say a quick word on. The word invest or investiture in this context means to clothe, to clothe. And the controversy was, who gets to clothe the priests? Well, of course, the church said, hey, we are the ones who clothe the priests. We're the ones who decide who are priests. We're the ones who... We're the ones who clothe, clothe kings as well. The investiture controversy. Who gets to place the garments of priestly duties and the garments of kingly duties? And, and the church said, well, that is our divine right. And Henry IV said, no, that's my right. I choose. No, I, and here you begin to have this controversy over who gets to clothe who. And here's a, a woodcut that depicts the clothing of the priest by the king and the king by the priest. Cantor in his, uh, one of his books says, the age of the investiture controversy may be rightly regarded as the turning point in medieval civilization. This controversy over who's calling the shots here. Is the church calling the shots or the state? It was the fulfillment of the early Middle Ages because in it, the acceptance of the Christian religion by the Germanic peoples reached its final and decisive stage. The greater part of the religious and political system of the high Middle Ages, 1000 to about 1300, emerged out of the events and ideas of the investiture controversy, Norman Cantor, church, kingship, and lay investiture. Now, you, you see what's happening here. You have, you have two things that are happening simultaneously. They're not two different things. They're two sides of the same coin. One is a departure from Scripture, and the other is an increasingly cozy and confused relationship with the state. By the time we get to 1200, Pope Innocent III claims the church's power over all of Europe's kings. And finally, Pope Boniface VIII crafts what's called, what was a papal document called Unum Sanctum, which means one holy, one holy, one holy containing the most extreme statements of papal spiritual supremacy ever made in 1302. Part of the document, in Unum, part of the document of Unum Sanctum by Boniface VIII said, it is absolutely necessary for salvation that every human creature be subject to the what? To the Roman pontiff. Not the Alexandrian pontiff because there wasn't one. Not the pontiff in Jerusalem because there wasn't one. Not the pontiff in, in Constantinople, but the pontiff in Rome. If you want to be Christian, you have to take the Roman stamp of Christianity, the Roman version of Christianity, the Roman style of Christianity. It is necessary for salvation. I don't know how that settles with you, but that sits all kind of wrong with me. And people began to say in just about 100 years after that, that doesn't sit with Scripture either. That doesn't sit with Scripture either. Carlos Ayer, in his book Reformations, published by Yale University Press in 2015, writes, By the 15th century, despite many setbacks and dismal shortcomings, the Pope at Rome could claim universal jurisdiction over all of Christendom, even over the whole world. A major theme throughout the medieval period from Richard's, Robert C. Walton's church history backgrounds is the increasing power of the church in relationship to the power of the state. Perhaps due to the authority vacuum created by the demise of the Roman Empire, we've talked about that, medieval popes wielded greater and greater authority. 
Popes crowned monarchs in the Carolingian era. Gregory VII triumphed momentarily over Henry IV of Germany. That was the investiture controversy. Innocent III humbled the kings of England and France. And Boniface VIII made the most strident claims of the church's supremacy over the state. And so what we have is not only a departure from Scripture, but an increasingly confused and cozy relationship with the state, which would later lead people like J.A. Wiley, a Protestant historian, to say, the noon of the papacy was the midnight of the world. When things were going swimmingly well for the medieval church, things were not going well for the rest of the world. If you were among the elite, if you were among the clergy, if you were among the hierarchy, things could be all right. But if you weren't in the in crowd, the noon of the papacy was the midnight of the world. And as the departure from Scripture came increasingly prominent, a departure from scriptural teaching became increasingly common. And here's just a shotgun review of some of those doctrinal departures from Scripture. Latin was, only Latin could be used in prayer and in worship, they said in AD 600. They began to pray to Mary, to the saints and the angels in A.D. 600. Kissing the Pope's feet in A.D. 700. The veneration of the cross and images and relics in A.D. 786. The College of Cardinals to elect the Bishop of Rome was established in 927. The canonization of the dead as saints in 995. Mandatory mass attendance in A.D. 1000. The celibacy of the priesthood in 1079 the rosary and repetitious prayer in 1090, indulgences to reduce time in purgatory, which will become huge for Luther in just a moment, Uh, what's called transubstantiation, which is right at the heart of Catholic teaching in 1215, the idea that when you take the Eucharistic bread into your mouth, it becomes the literal body of Jesus, the literal flesh of Jesus, transubstance. It changes substance. And this can only be received by a priest through the Mass in the church, which you can understand now, if you are excommunicated or you are cut off from access to the Eucharist, if you are cut off from access to the priest and the mess, you're cut off from God. You can just imagine the power that the church wielded in the, in, in, in the medieval period, and it was Lord Acton who would later observe, many centuries would later observe, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. He said that about the Bishop of Rome. None other than the Bishop of Rome. Tradition is claimed equal with Bible in 1545, and the apocryphal books were added in 1546 as a result of the Council of Trent. Carlos Ayer in his book again, Reformation, slowly but steadily, these unorthodox reformers, these people called the Waldensians. I was just recently with Gordon and Carolyn and Scott and Lynn and about a hundred other people touring through the Torrepelice Valley, the Waldensian Valleys. There were people... Even though the the Roman imprint and the Roman impress was large in Christendom and large in Europe, there were people who hid out in the Alps and in other locations who resisted the homogeneity of Roman Catholicism. They said, not for us. We're going to stick to Scripture. And that's who Er is speaking about here. Slowly but steadily, these unorthodox reformers, the Waldensians, were violently suppressed until only a few remained in remote regions of the Alps. I had a privilege to visit some of those regions. I went into a cave with Gordon and, and, and others into a very cave in which 36 Waldensian pastors were burned alive by the papal armies. One of the very few Western heretical movements to survive total extinction. These mountain folk would eventually join the Protestant Reformation in the 1530s, at which time they came to be seen as forerunners or spiritual ancestors 
a sure sign of the fact that the true church was never totally extinguished by Rome, says Eyre, who is himself a Catholic historian, by the way. Later, John Wycliffe in 1330 to 1384, that's the date. Remember when we have that, the beginning now of the Reformational period, I said it could be either sort of 1330, 1331, all the way up to 1517. Those are good dates. John Wycliffe expressed some of the very same reforming ideas, which raises a question. If Wycliffe is saying what these Waldensian resistors were saying, where are they getting it from? Were they listening to it online? Had they, had they have a subscription? Were they reading? No. How, how did they know? Because they were getting it from Scripture. The Waldensians were passionate about Scripture. Wycliffe was passionate about Scripture. The very same reforming ideas as the Waldensians with greater clarity and precision than ever before. For Wycliffe, the genuine head of the church, was Christ, not the Pope. And the supreme guide for all doctrine, ritual, and ethics was, what are the next two words? The Bible. Anything that did not square with holy writ, therefore, was to be rejected. Wycliffe's teaching would make their way into the hands of another academic, John Huss, 1370 to 1415. Huss was teaching and preaching in the vein of Wycliffe. Well, where did he get this idea from? Did he get it from Audible? Did he get it from YouTube? No, he got it from Scripture. John Huss in Bohemia, and he began to attract a large following. He would later be burned at the stake. Convinced that the Bible was the ultimate authority and that the church needed to be brought back in line with Holy Scripture. Sola Scriptura. Huss challenged tradition and the church hierarchy. And so not only did the church depart from apostolic purity and simplicity and plunge down into this deep darkness in the medieval period, not only that, but there began to be these reformational cries as people began to do something like this. They began to look at Scripture and look at the church. Look at Scripture, look at the church. Look at Scripture, look at the church. Look at Scripture, look at the church. And they began to say, hey, this doesn't square with this. This and this are not adding up. And so the cry was increasingly not tradition, not the councils, but what does Scripture say? What does the Bible say? And Luther, the catalyzer and the best-known figure in the Protestant Reformation, would coin this phrase, sola scriptura. Sola scriptura is not only an historical reality, it is a methodological reality. How do we arrive at truth? How do we arrive at salvation? How do we come to know God as our Father and Jesus as our Savior? Luther would say, through Scripture, through the Bible. What does the Bible say? Don't talk to me about the priests or the popes or the cardinals or the councils. What does Scripture say? The church on the eve of Reformation had a number of factors that are beginning to influence as we're down here at the bottom spiritually. A number of things are beginning to happen in Europe that are actually changing the whole landscape of economics and many things are happening. Socioeconomic changes, increasing encroachment from the Islamic Turks in the East. Nationalism is increasing. People don't just want to send their tax money away to Rome. Germans say the German money is good for the Germans and the French say the French money is good for the French and the Spanish say the Spanish money is good for... Well, they always said it was pretty much good for, the, for, for Rome. But many increasingly nations were saying, we want to keep our own money. And there was an emerging humanism. Carlos Aragon, by the beginning of the 16th century, despite, despite all the cries for reform, the Catholic Church, again, he's a Catholic historian. Listen to this. The Catholic Church was as rife with problems as the world itself. During the course of the 15th century, the abuses and failings of the church became more conspicuous, more openly discussed, and more deeply resented by a wider spectrum of people. Also, after 1450, the invention of the printing press not only allowed for the wider dissemination of information and reforming ideas, but also speeded up the process of consciousness raising among both laity and clergy. 
at the very top in Rome. The papacy itself seemed to be the epitome of corruption, an office controlled by worldly men who seemed to embody sin rather than redemption from it. Earlier we talked about how do you make a pope, and we just gave a brief overview of how do you make a pope. Well, the next question would be what's the recipe not for a pope, not for a cake, not for a pie, not for a lasagna, but how do you make a reformation? And the answer is you need four ingredients. You need a mess, a message, a means, and a man. The church has to be a mess. You can't have reformational cries if there's not a need for reformation. And the church was a giant mess. Clerical abuse and corruption and radical departures from Scripture coupled with an increasingly cozy and confused relationship with the state, people began to say, hey, the church is a mess. People like Wycliffe and Huss and later Luther began to cry out and say, the Bible and the church do not comport. They are not consistent. And so there was a mess, but you also needed a message. And the whole of the message could be summarized in just two words, that simple Latin phrase, sola scriptura. And when Luther would later stand before the Diet at Worms, where he would stand before Charles V, the emperor of the world, he would stand before Charles V, and he would be told to, com to recant. You have to recant. Do you recant? Are these your writings? Yes, these are my writings. You must recant. And he refused to recant. He said, I, I can't go along with the popes or the councils or the creeds. I ha you have to show me sola scriptura. Show me from the Bible. Well, Luther could have said all of that, but if there wasn't a means... If Gutenberg had not invented the, the printing press whereby the, the great truth could get out to the world, you and I would be none the wiser. And Luther would have been none the wiser. In fact, I, I've read reports that say that within, within one month of Luther's posting his theses of protest to the door, you just have to understand historically how tectonic this was, how game-changing this was. Within a month of Luther going tick, tick, tick and nailing those theses, of course that part is actually disputed whether or not he physically nailed them, but for our purposes here, Luther nails those theses to the door and within a month they had been distributed over the whole of Germany by the printing press, by the, by the fact that, that you could now quickly and easily and cheaply make copies of things. If Luther had come around 100 years before, he would have never gotten off the ground and you would only probably know about him if you were an historian. But the fact that we know about him is that the internet of the day, the World Wide Web of the day, could take that information and distribute it very quickly. There was a means. And finally, you needed a man who would stand up and speak truth to power. And Luther, that young, unlikely Augustinian monk, was just the man. And his battle cry and the battle cry of the Reformation was so simple, sola scriptura. Ironically, it would be the construction of a building that would spark the destruction of the church's medieval reign. Pope Julius II had a dream and his dream was to build St. Peter's Basilica bigger and better than ever. In fact, he was going to build it so big that it was going to take, it was going to take more than a century to complete the construction. And it was, going to be so, it was going to take a lot of money. And in order to get that money, they were going to have a number of plenary indulgences. Indulgences were a part of the Catholic faith where you could go and literally purchase an indulgence for yourself or for a loved one who had passed away and gone away to purgatory. And, and, and they were basically monetizing, as I just recently was in Rome. And for those of you that have been to Rome and been to the Vatican, it's simultaneously beautiful and really not beautiful because you have this whole beautiful, aesthetically pleasing, lovely paintings, lovely uh, sculptures, and all of that's there. But when you realize that the reason that it's there is that you've monetized guilt. You've monetized fear. You've monetized shame. You've monetized religion. 
And so Pope Julius had this great idea that he himself couldn't complete, but he would hand the baton to a guy named Pope Leo X, and Pope Leo X would give permission to, to a, a veritable army of, of preachers to go out into Christian Europe and to begin to sell these indulgences, and one of them would come by destiny, unsuspecting, just outside Wittenberg, where he would preach his sermons, and some of Luther's own church members would go and purchase these these indulgences. They would bring them to Luther and say, look, look, I purchased this indulgence. My, my uh, mother or my whatever or me, I, we're now free of sin. And Luther would say those indulgences are not worth the paper they're written on. And so in a really fascinating and ironic way, the building up of this great cathedral, the building up of this great basilica would actually be the thing that would catalyze a series of events and bring about the demise of the medieval church's reign. And it all boiled down, my friends, it all boiled down to just two words, sola scriptura. Luther was not the only reformer, but he was the most prominent of the reformers, and others would later follow in his steps. We'll talk about that in subsequent presentations. But I want you to just soak in today the power of this book that you have in your hand, a book that it's so easy to take for granted. A book that is so easy to neglect compared to the super wild and exciting and brand new app iPhone. Or maybe you're a Galaxy person, whatever it is. It's just the television and the computer and the sport events. And there's just so much more interesting than Scripture. Or are they? If this is a book that can change the course of the world, if this is a book that can change the course of civilization, this is a book that can change the course of your life for the better. It can change the course of your family's life. It can change the course of your neighborhood. This is a book that is far more interesting and exciting than any movie, than any novel, than any video game. Friends, I say to you what Luther said to Charles V and so many others centuries ago, Scripture and Scripture alone. Amen? Amen. How many people want to respond with me and say, I, I, I need to receive this message. I need to receive the message of the importance the centrality of Scripture in my own life, not just as an historical reality, but I need to receive this message into my life today. Anybody out there? You need to receive the sola scriptura message. Father in heaven, we pause here to remind ourselves that we are standing on the shoulders of giants. Father, this was a phrase, this was an idea, this was a revolutionary concept that turned the world upside down. That ordinary people, common people, people just like us could go to the text of Scripture in their own language, whether German or, or in the English language, and they could read it. And in the reading, without going through a church or a priest or a pope, that in the reading and by the Spirit, they could connect directly with you. And Father, today, forgive us where we have taken this so easily and so blithely for granted. Father, I pray that there would be a revival among us of a primitive passion for Scripture. Father, may Scripture find its place, its rightful place in our lives, in our homes, and in our families, is my prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, amen.